My name is Zareen, and I welcome you to the Soul Salons. I'm returning to some Buddhist teachings in this episode. To learn a bit more about the Buddha himself, I invite you to listen to Episode 1 in Season 2, where I talk about Buddha's life and the Four Noble Truths. Today, I'm going to review the Dhammapada, which is a collection of Buddha's sayings in verse form. You could translate the term Dhammapada to mean something like the path of righteousness. What I liked about this work is that each entry offers a story about the context in which the Buddha gave his teaching. Here's an example. Anapuba was a faithful householder who fulfilled his duties to the monastics, and later was ordained himself, but he became weary with all the rules and regulations. The Buddha told him his real duty was only to guard his mind, and further taught him with this verse. Hard to see and very subtle, and flitting wherever it will, the sage should surely guard the mind. A guarded mind brings happiness. I'll share another example, although I need to explain the term arhat, which means a, perf- a perfected person who has gained enlightenment. Here's the story. The elder Lakuntaka Badia was a dwarf who became an arhat. Because of his condition, the novices and others used to tease him, but he remained unmoved and the Buddha explained why this was so with this verse. Just as solid rock is not shaken by the wind, so the wise are not moved by either blame or praise. It's interesting to think of having the same detached attitude when someone either praises or blames you, because we clearly like praise and not blame. But Buddha puts them both into one category of attachment, it seems. I'll share a few more of these stories and teachings in this episode, and I want to dive a little deeper, too, into the concept of karma. But I'll start with the Dhammapada. The 423 verses of the text are composed in 26 chapters, although these chapters are quite short. It conveys insights given by the Buddha over the 45 years of his teaching, as he traveled in the valley of the Ganges and in the mountains of the Himalayas. The Dhammapada was written in the ancient Pali language. It is apparently one of the most well-known and widely read of the Buddhist scriptures and comes from the Theravada Buddhist tradition, which is the oldest school of Buddhism. I found an introduction online from an organization called the Burma Tipitaka Association. It explains that through these verses, the Buddha exhorts one to achieve that greatest of all conquests, the conquest of self to escape from the evils of passion, hatred, and ignorance, and to strive hard to attain freedom from craving and freedom from the round of rebirths. Rebirths, or reincarnation, is of course a central tenet of Buddhism. According to one of my go-to books for this series, The Spiritual Heritage of the Human Race, it's the idea that all living things have souls and the form into which each soul incarnates is directly determined by one's actions in previous lives. There are apparently six categories of realms where rebirth can occur. These include the hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, the asura realm, in which one can be a demigod with good or bad qualities, the human realm, and finally the celestial realm. According to the Buddhist philosophy, one can experience rebirth in either higher or lower forms depending on one's actions. I have to admit that I've never been particularly keen on the reincarnation idea, because I'm not so sure I want to come back to this world, and certainly not in one of the scarier conditions. Although on the other hand, maybe it would be okay to say, be a nice animal. 
it might be an easier life with less to worry about than we humans do. Actually, though, we should be very grateful that we are in the human realm at present. There's another story and verse from the Dhammapada about that. A monk in the time of Buddha Kasapa died and was reborn as a Naga, which is a serpent. Eventually, he heard that a new Buddha has arisen in the world, and went and asked why he cannot attain rebirth as a human, even after so long a time. This was the Buddha's reply. It is rare to be born human, rare is the life of mortals. It is rare to hear true Dhamma, rare the arising of Buddhas. In my book, The Spiritual Heritage of the Human Race, it says that the human realm is regarded with great esteem because individuals can achieve enlightenment. Rebirth in the human realm is supposedly extremely rare and precious, an opportunity not to be wasted. These concepts made me think a little bit about suicide. I looked it up and there's about 700,000 people globally a year that commit suicide and many more who attempt it. I know many of us in our lives have stages when we feel that this life is kind of pointless. But maybe we need to flip our thinking. According to the Buddhist traditions, we are really privileged to be here. Being human is the highest level we can reach, before the celestial realm that is. So maybe it's a rare opportunity to have free will and to think of it as a school that we're attending for our own spiritual development. Switching topics, one common theme that I see in many of these wisdom traditions is the advice not to keep the company of fools. It's an idea reiterated in the ancient Greek and Roman philosophies and throughout most religious traditions that I've featured in the soul salons, but it comes up in Buddhism too. I'll share a passage about that. It refers to the stream-enterer, which is one of the first stages of awakening. When the Buddha lay ill, Saka, lord of the gods, came to minister to him. The monks wondered why, and the Buddha explained how he had previously answered Saka's questions, who thereby became a stream-enterer. The Buddha summarized Saka's affection with these verses. Meeting the noble ones is good, and living together is pleasant. Through not meeting foolish people, one will constantly be happy. For he who consorts with fools grieves for a long time. Dwelling with fools is always suffering, as it is with enemies. The wise one dwells happily, as with his kin. Therefore, the firm, the wise, and the learned, the virtuous, dutiful, and noble, keep company with such a true person as the moon accompanies the stars. I questioned Buddha's comment about one dwelling happily with his kin, some of the most hurtful experiences in my life has come from relatives, and I'm sure that some of you listening to this podcast can relate to that sentiment. But I also came across another verse in the Dhammapada which expresses the importance, too, of detaching from family. Maybe when we need to for our own emotional health or to reach a higher level of our own spiritual development. Here's the passage. After losing all her relatives in various disasters... Patakara also lost her mind. Eventually, she wandered into the presence of the Buddha, who gave the teaching in this verse, at which point she became a stream-enterer. Children are not a true refuge, nor fathers and not kin. For one overcome by the end-maker, there is no refuge in relatives. Understanding the truth of this, the wise one, endowed with virtue, should quickly purify the path that is leading to nirvana. Nirvana is the ultimate stage of enlightenment. But I promised, too, that I would talk a little bit about karma, which is the law of cause and effect. 
It essentially means willed activity. The basic idea is that a person's motivations and consequences of their actions will decide their fate in a future existence. Like most people, I suppose, I've done some good things and been kind to people, but I've also done some very selfish things and been unkind. So the idea of our bad deeds coming back to, well, bite us in the butt, isn't very appealing. But still, maybe it's good to think about next time we are inclined toward anger or being snarky to someone. My book, The Spiritual Heritage of the Human Race, says that karma determines the next life in the manner of a rock, which, when thrown into a lake, causes waves that ripple outward. In a more positive vein, it also says, The Buddhist view of cause and effect is not fatalistic. Every moment provides the opportunity to direct the course of one's future. The ripples in the lake idea is an interesting one to meditate on, namely thinking about how every thought and action has consequences that you might not be able to see, either good or bad. The idea of karma is a key concept in Buddhism, but it shows up first in Hinduism's holy book, the Upanishads. It also appears in an ancient faith called Jainism, which was also centered in India. But in Jainism, karma is considered a physical substance. You can think of it like a smoke that gathers around the mirror of the soul and creates a karmic stain that distorts its perception. Karmic stains do not destroy the soul, said the spiritual heritage book I referred to earlier, but they block the soul's awareness of its own pure and perfect nature. Jains do believe one can engage in spiritual practices that purify the soul of negative karma. The Buddhist text, the Dhammapada, also mentions this process. Here's a passage on that idea. A Brahmin saw the monks waiting to go for alms, and each day improved the conditions where they gathered, until eventually he built a hall for them and invited the Buddha and the monks for a meal. When the Buddha heard of his endeavors, he spoke this verse. The sagacious person gradually, little by little, moment by moment, should surely remove the stain from himself, like a smith removes the stain from silver. So some lessons from this episode are perhaps to be grateful you are having this human experience, not to be shaken by the wind, not to associate with fools, and to purify your soul from stains. I'll leave you with a final directive on taking responsibility for one's actions, which I think kind of sums up what I've covered here today. When a lay disciple invited the Buddha for a meal, an ascetic whom she supported abused both her and the Buddha. The Buddha advised her not to worry about what the ascetic is doing or saying, but instead to look to herself. Not the wrong of others or what others have done or have not done one should consider, but what has been done and not done by oneself.